You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the next chapter in our story of explorer Freya Stark. And I say next chapter because last time I, again, made the claim that this would be the final episode in our series on Stark. But you know what? I lied again. I got into this episode and her expeditions into Yemen, and boom, I just needed more time. There's just too much good stuff to talk about. So for this episode, I will cover Stark's two expeditions into Yemen, and next time we will finish up the series. Of that, I am confident. As a note, there is a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, showing the locations of Stark's journeys in Yemen. Otherwise, let's get going today as we cover Freya Stark's two expeditions into Yemen in the latter half of the 1930s. The year was 1934. Freya Stark had published her book, The Valleys of the Assassins, and had become a worldwide celebrity. People loved her adventures, and they respected how she was able to accomplish so much. Also, she was now seen as an expert on the Middle East, bringing a thoughtful and insightful look at the problems of the region. Stark had spent much of 1934 recovering from cosmetic surgery, which addressed the scars of her childhood accident. Much of this time was spent in Italy, surrounded by family, friends, and acquaintances. She had one scary moment when mountaineering in Bavaria with a friend. High up on the trail, she lost her footing and went over the edge. Thankfully, she was tied to her friend and her guide, and instead of plunging a thousand feet to her death, she dangled in the air helplessly while her colleagues pulled her to safety. Interestingly, she said she hadn't been afraid at that moment. Author Jane Fletcher Janice, in her book, Passionate Nomad, The Life of Freya Stark, wrote, quote, Death had lost its terror, end quote. I found this an interesting observation, and it does, to some degree, explain the actions of Freya Stark, both before and after the incident. It seems that her life experiences had emboldened her in a way she had never imagined. She had been nearly killed as a child. She had lived through the Great War as a nurse, experiencing death on an unprecedented scale. She had lost her sister, nieces, and nephews, and recently she had found success in her explorations by ignoring the naysayers. She had almost died more than once, but in the end, she was still standing. Perhaps everything she had endured and experienced had made her feel a bit bulletproof, and the idea of death just didn't really bother her. In some ways, this manifested itself with the development of a new persona for Freya Stark. She had always been this shy, diminutive woman, eager to please and not cause problems. But now we see the emergence of a more confident and more flamboyant personality. She wasn't afraid to speak up. 
This was especially true amongst men, who she saw as being the power brokers in the world. Amongst women, she could, at times, be dismissive. But amongst men, and I'm specifically talking about European men, she sought to thrust herself into the limelight and let them know she was to be heard. No matter, Freya Stark was now a celebrity, and the question everyone asked her was, what is next? While Stark had taken an interest in the Arabian Peninsula, and specifically the area of Yemen, in the southwest corner of the region. Yemen was known by various names throughout history, including Punt and Al-Yaman. Yemen was famous for its ports, such as Aden, but moving inland, it was rugged and mountainous. It had dominated maritime trade between India and Africa for over a thousand years, as anything that went up the Red Sea had to sail past the area. Well, before the era of sea-based trade, the southern reaches of Arabia sported the great overland trade routes. This is from a time two and three and four thousand years ago. These routes were jealously guarded as they brought in so much money. These areas, which today we call Yemen and Oman, were rich in oils and resins, none more valuable than frankincense. Incense was used by many people for a variety of reasons. The Egyptians used it to help clean out a body cavity during the mummification process. It was used medicinally to treat diabetes, gastritis, and stomach ulcers. But it was especially valued in a wide variety of cultures in Europe and the Middle East for religious ceremonies. It was so valuable, frankincense was one of the three gifts brought to the manger at the birth of Jesus. Anyhow, the area of Yemen grew rich and powerful due to these overland caravans. However, that changed over time. The first change occurred due to the growth of the sea trade. As shipping improved, it became quicker, safer, and cheaper to transport goods by sea. The wealth thus moved to the coast at the expense of the cities on the inland trade routes. The second change was linked to the growth of Islam, which came to dominate the entire Arabian Peninsula by the 7th century. Islam doesn't require the use of incense, unlike Christianity and Judaism, and so the trafficking of incense began to taper off. As that happened, the overland routes became too costly to maintain, and they faded into obscurity. Stark was interested in tracing the overland route in an area called Hadramaut. Hadramaut is a natural thoroughfare, even to this day, through the mountains of Yemen. It was the heart of the ancient kingdom of Sheba, running from what is now western Oman and into Yemen, stopping before it got to the really rugged region in the southwestern tip of the peninsula. The capital of Hadramaut was Shabwa in the northwest corner of the kingdom. The famed Roman historian Pliny called the city Sabata and said that it had 60 temples and wealth beyond description. In Stark's time, it was a city buried by the sands and no one knew its exact location. And that, she decided, made it a really cool thing to go looking for. In 1934, Yemen was really a place of two worlds, which was going to make Stark's journey problematic. There was the coast, and then there was the interior. The coastal areas were under the rule of Great Britain in a region called the South Arabian Protectorate. The port of Aden, seized by the British in 1839, was the most important city in the area. The problem facing Stark was that outside of the coast, the area quickly became mountainous and hard to access. The local tribes in the interior were xenophobic and distrusted the British. Conflict between tribes was common. There was an invisible border between the coast and the interior that acted as a do-not-cross sign. Where Stark wanted to go was across that line. Crossing it meant she was going into an area of warring tribes, bandits, and the unknown. Of course, Stark was confident she could go into these areas without a problem, as she had done it before. To prepare for the expedition, Stark consumed everything she could to learn about the region and what she was searching for. She read Herodotus, Strabo, Pliny, the Bible, Koran, and other sources. 
She studied the Sabian script, the written language of the kingdom of Sheba. She studied hemuratic hieroglyphics, learned about the cities of the region and their histories. Stark arrived in Aden after a brief stop in Cairo in November of 1934. The weather was good as it wasn't summer, but she was bothered by a bit of dysentery. In Aden, she tapped into her network of friends and connections to formulate her plans. British and Yemeni officials gave her documents to help her with her expedition. These documents would get her assistance and safe passage in their areas of influence. Stark called them open sesames. It was also in Aden that Stark became friends with Anton Bess, a 57-year-old Frenchman. Bess was a successful businessman with interests in shipping, transportation, insurance, and manufacturing. He was described as a man who loved to experience the world, and he wasn't afraid of a challenge. He appreciated things outside the norm, and he found that in Freya Stark. He liked her daring and drive. She fell for his confidence and passion. The two hit it off from the start. Bess, by the way, was married. This would be the start of an on-and-off relationship between Stark and the charismatic Frenchman. Bess's wife, Hilda, was tolerant of her husband's affairs, and Freya and her would actually become friends. In Aden, Stark would enjoy her newfound romantic relationship while firming up her plans for her expedition. She decided that she wanted to trace the ancient incense trade route using landmarks and ruins that still existed. This was in northern Yemen. The route would take her from Arib, the ancient capital of the kingdom of Sheba, to Shabwa. Shabwa was the real prize, as its exact location was unknown. Also, there were tales of treasure buried in Shabwa, and as we have seen, Stark was a sucker for treasure hunts. Another thing on Stark's agenda was to collect artifacts and relics, such as ancient manuscripts, jewelry, and any other cool stuff that she could find. To begin, Stark would sail to the port of Mukalla on the coast of the Gulf of Aden. She would then go north by donkey or camel and slip across the imaginary border between the north and south, and then go by car into the mountains. She would then head into the desert to the western edge of Wadi Hadramat. A wadi is a valley or channel with a water source. In this case, the Wadi Hadramat was a 350-mile-long valley, the longest and most fertile in all of the Arabian Peninsula. It was the heart of the Hadramat kingdom thousands of years ago. Freya Stark sailed for Mukalla on January 13, 1935, on one of Anton Bess's steamers. She was a couple of weeks shy of her 42nd birthday. She was welcomed by the Sultan of Mukalla and spent five days in his palace. She toured the city, including the docks, markets, and prisons. The prisons were filled with hostages taken from various tribes, which was done to maintain the peace in the area. The conditions were so appalling, Stark gave a donation to help them out. Regarding the regional situation, there was a fragile peace amongst the tribes, but fighting still broke out. The Sultan's troops would take hostages from the tribes that caused the problems, hence the full prisons. One of the key architects of the area's peace was Harold Ingrams, the political officer in Yemen. Ingrams was wary about Stark's expedition, as he didn't want her inadvertently stirring up trouble with the tribes. Few Europeans had ever gone into the interior of the area, so who knows what could happen. Stark hired two guides to help her on her journey, Salim and Said. These were Bedouins, and she called them, quote, wild little men in some earlier world, end quote. The two wore loincloths, had uncombed hair, huge curved daggers in their waist, and a black cord around their necks. The cords could be used as a tourniquet if needed. The daggers had handles made of rhinoceros horn. Both men were covered in indigo, their bodies, their faces, their clothing. It was all purple. Stark later learned that the indigo provided a sort of layer protection from the cold at night. 
The men were paid 50 rupees for their services. There were three donkeys, one for Stark to ride on and two to carry supplies. This included rice, bread, dates, sugar, tea, bananas, and limes. There were also four live chickens to be eaten on the road. The expedition would get a fourth person at the insistence of the governor of Makula, a soldier. The soldier, who was never named, was actually an African slave. Stark found the man more troublesome than helpful due to his stubbornness and lack of awareness. Regarding slavery, it was commonplace in Arabia at this time. The Sultan's personal guard was made up of slave soldiers, and it was not uncommon for families to have a slave as a servant. To be a slave was often seen as a better station in life than to be an orphan or beggar. Stark doesn't comment much on the morals of the practice, mostly observing the place that slaves had in local society, which often wasn't pretty. The expedition would set out a line of donkeys and people heading north. The company had grown beyond Freya and her guides. Another man, also named Saeed, had joined the caravan. It was safer to travel in a group than go alone. There was also a 10-year-old boy named Mohammed, the nephew of one of the guides. Stark and her party marched across a barren, stony landscape as they went north towards the mountains. It was a lonely ride, save for the occasional caravan in the distance. The Bedouin guides would point out to Stark caves and rock formations, saying that there were men in there, watching them. They kept to themselves because of the recently imposed peace. Regarding the Bedouin guides, Stark liked the two men, despite their wild looks. They spoke Arabic, but in a dialect that often caused them to struggle to understand one another but they appreciated her efforts. And they also appreciated the fact that Stark ate her meals with them. They said that most Europeans would eat away from the hired help, but Stark ate what her guides ate and right beside them. It was this sort of thing that endeared Stark to the native people, embracing their culture and habits and not looking down on them or how they did things. Anyhow, the caravan would head up towards the mountains, Stark taking photos and making notes on her maps as she went. Stark's expedition headed up higher and higher onto a plateau. They reached Wadi Don after six days, rifles being fired off to announce their arrival. Stark met with the governors, a pair of brothers named Muhammad and Ahmed Basura. Wadi Don was a prosperous, good-sized town with high walls and a fort with two watchtowers. There was even a landing field for the occasional plane. Stark was given a place with the castle's women to sleep, not to mention a hot bath, allowing her to clean off a week's worth of dust. Everything seemed to be going well. However, it turned out that there was an illness running through the wadi, measles. And guess who had never had measles? And guess who promptly got measles? You got it, Freya Stark. She would thus fall into a week of what she called unbroken and miserable dreams. Stark's care was given over to the women of the castle, and she was forced to endure all sorts of native remedies to cure her affliction. One old woman spit on Stark's head while muttering incantations. After about a week, Stark began to recover, and she insisted she wanted to continue her journey. No more spitting on her head. For this, Stark was assigned a man named Hassan, a former pilot from Mecca, who had been in the Arab army during World War I. He was a level-headed man who wore European-style clothing. He would remain with her for the rest of her journey. As for guides, her Bedouins, Salim and Said, were done. The tribes had strict rules about where a person could travel to, and this was their extent. Going forward, Stark's guides, usually Bedouins, would change out to accommodate these restrictions. Also, Stark was given another person to go with her, a young Saeed, a holy man, to aid her on her journey. A Saeed was a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. This offered better protection than any gun, as no one dared shoot a descendant of the Prophet. The other big change for Stark would be her mode of transportation. Going forward, she would be traveling by car, 
this was a welcome change. After 12 days in Wadi Don, Stark and her party, which still included her soldier from Mukalla, would continue north. The travelers would pass villages and towns and wadis. Along the way, Stark investigated locations that appeared to be good spots for excavating and collected shards of pottery and mosaics that bore hemuratic inscriptions. The expedition turned east into Wadi Hadramat. Stark was stunned at how impressive many of these towns were. They sported high walls and palaces. She also found out that many of these places were enemies with each other. In fact, at one location, she encountered two big walled towns within sight of each other and deadly foes. As a note, Stark was under the protection of the Sultan of Mukalla, and while the Sultan was the nominal boss in the area, in reality he held little direct power. But the local rulers were happy to help Freya out. She appeared harmless, even an interesting curiosity. But mostly, they didn't want to do anything to hinder her and cause a problem with officials in Mukalla. She wasn't worth the hassle. And thus Stark went from tribe to tribe and town to town, introducing herself and working to win them over to her cause. And for the most part, it worked. They would help her out. As Stark moved east, she investigated places in the valley and found inscriptions and objects that were thousands of years old, signs of the old incense route. In the town of Cotton, the local sultan told Stark that she was not far from the ruins of the old city of Shabwa. He promised to make sure she had a proper Bedouin guide for the journey there. She was also told that the people who lived near the ruins mined salt and shipped it by caravan to the south. Stark was excited. The object of her journey was only days away. From Cotton, it was on to Shibham and next to Wadi Hadramat and to the town of Sayun. There she stayed in the home of a wealthy merchant. However, her health issues continued to dog her. Finally, on February 16, 1937, she moved on to Tarim. The town, which featured a grand castle and impressive mosque, was a center of Sunni Islamic teaching. She was the first outside woman to ever come alone to visit them, and they would call her a great woman. Now, three things. First, Stark was just a couple of days away from Shabwa. This was her chance to find a lost city. It was so close. Second, she was appalled to find out that there was a German photographer in the area, also searching for Shabwa. This infuriated Stark. She had developed quite a competitive streak in her, and the idea that someone would scoop her discovery made her blood boil. And third, Stark's health was not good. The after-effects of measles had simply worn her down. In Tarim, she found a chemist named Mahmoud, who told her she was suffering from a combination of measles, bronchitis, and pneumonia. He gave her a variety of medicines and injections, which made her feel better, at least well enough to continue her quest. And so Stark set out in search of Shabwa, her goal to get there before her German foe. She had a car with a guide and a driver, as well as Hassan and her soldier. There were more ruins and villages to see, but it wasn't long before Stark's health faltered again. She had medicine to help her, but not a doctor to give her guidance on what to take. From her experience as a nurse and her medical guidebook, she knew what medications would help her specific symptoms. Her problem was that she didn't always interpret symptoms correctly, and she didn't always understand the consequences of mixing different medications. The result was, at times, worse than her original problem. Soon she had dysentery, chest pains, and heart palpitations. She was so exhausted, she had to be helped up just to drink water. Someone thus went to Tarim, where the chemist, Mahmoud, rushed out to help her. Also, a message was sent to Aiden, asking for assistance. It turns out that Stark was suffering from angina, chest pain caused by reduced blood flow to the heart, likely brought on by all of her health problems and all the medications she was taking. The chemist would give her a shot of something called Loganol, which saved her life. 
Stark spent several days laid up before being taken back to Shabam by car. In all, she had been laid up for nearly two weeks before four Royal Air Force planes arrived to help her. They landed and a doctor went to Stark and he ordered her back to Aden by plane. An overland journey, he said, would kill her. And so Freya Stark's dream of discovering the lost city of Shabwa was over. She was flown to Aden and brought to a British hospital. It would take her weeks to recover. After that, it was back to Italy to recuperate with family and friends. By the way, the German photographer Hans Hilfritz reached the outskirts of the city of Shabwa, but that was all. That prize would ultimately go to Arabist Harry St. John Philby, who would, the following year, be the first person to actually reach Shabwa. Despite missing out on the big prize, people loved Stark's story, although she would lament the missed opportunity. Of it all, Stark said, quote, I know it is vulgar to just want to be the first, but yet it is better when one has come so far. Damn the German. End quote. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Despite not finding her treasured city, Freya Stark returned to Europe to more praise and accolades. She went from Italy to England to spend time with friends and start writing the story of her latest adventures. The Royal Geographical Society gave her a huge reception on her return and praised her work, calling it the most complete summation on the ancient southern Arabian incense route to date. She could now add historical geographer to her list of accomplishments. She would, of course, write a book about her journey, titled The Southern Gates of Arabia. It was published in 1936 to outstanding reviews and sales. Critics hailed it for being more than just a simple travel book, and as someone who has read Stark's books, you can see she was growing as a writer. She had become a great storyteller, and the use of her photography enhanced the quality of the book. But she was not without her critics. Stark had been flown out of the interior by the British Air Force, and some scolded her for wasting taxpayer funds, which she made no effort to repay, and others had harsh words for her because what she was doing, roaming around the interior of a volatile region, threatened to undermine years of work put in by British officials. Another thing, the German photographer Hans Helfritz, who had nearly reached Shabwa, was treated quite harshly in Stark's book. He's not in it a lot, but he's cast as this bad guy, telling lies and doing all sorts of questionable stuff. Perhaps this was Stark trying to create an antagonist for a story, but the likely answer is that Stark was just really good at holding grudges, even foolish ones. The guy had done nothing to Stark other than to try and take away a prize she herself had just missed. Sadly, it is a pattern we will see with Stark. 
She did not forgive easily and went on the offensive if she thought she was wronged. All of that said, those criticisms were minor compared to the heaps of praise she received. The newspapers loved her, the Royal Geographical Society honored her, the public adored her. Her book was successful and there were lectures and awards, including receiving the Mungo Park Award from the Scottish Royal Geographic Society. Now, Stark wanted to return to Yemen to follow up on the things she had found, but her health would delay any return. She suffered from a variety of ailments, including severe anemia and exhaustion. Leading up to the publication of her book in 1936, she spent a month in a London nursing home just trying to recover from the stress and ailments. People said she was more frail than they'd ever seen her. However, in 1937, Stark was feeling healthy and was prepared to return to Yemen. And that takes us to a couple of quick notes. Around this time, she would have a falling out with one of her oldest friends, Venetia Budakam. Stark's romantic interest, Anton Bess, would come to London for a visit and spend some time with Venetia. Stark's jealous reaction, which was unwarranted, would not end her relationship with Venetia, but it would never be the same. At the same time, Stark's relationship with Anton would suffer as well, and the two ultimately would drift away from each other over the next few years. That takes us to 1937 and Stark's plans to head back to Yemen. And it means that I need to introduce an important player into our story, Gertrude Catton Thompson. Catton Thompson was a 49-year-old archaeologist. She was very different from Freya Stark. She was tall, born into money, attended private school in Paris, and trained in London. She was a brilliant woman and had made a name for herself through her fieldwork in Egypt, Malta, and Africa. It was her work in Africa that had captured the world's attention. She had gone to Zimbabwe, where there were some ruins in the southeast of the region known as the Great Zimbabwe. These are impressive ruins, and many Europeans had speculated that they had been built by non-indigenous people. I mean, the locals must have been influenced by Greeks or Phoenicians or whomever. People simply didn't believe that such impressive structures could be constructed by native Africans. Well, Catton Thompson, using an all-female team, came to view that Great Zimbabwe was, in fact, the product of a native civilization, despite fierce blowback from other scientists and archaeologists. And she was right. Her conclusions are supported by modern researchers. The ruins are the product of the Shona-speaking African civilization. Anyhow, Catton Thompson was an accomplished woman. She was an academic and a scientist and well-respected in the world of archaeology. She was interested in the archaeology of Yemen, looking to investigate possible links between Arabia and sub-Saharan societies in Africa. Stark and Catton Thompson ran into each other periodically in 1936 and 1937, and Freya talked about all the great unexplored locations she had found on her first expedition, and she showed Catton Thompson some of the artifacts she had brought back with her, which included obsidian shards that were 5,000 years old. This got them both excited. Everything seemed perfect for a collaboration. Catton Thompson didn't speak very good Arabic and had never been to Yemen, and Stark loved the idea of going on a real archaeological expedition. The Royal Geographical Society was quickly on board with the project and promised funding. And more importantly, they hooked them up with a major backer, a man named Charles Wakefield, the first Viscount of Hythe. Wakefield put 1,500 pounds into the endeavor, and thus the expedition was dubbed the Wakefield Expedition. The money would allow them to add a third member to the team, Eleanor Gardner, an old friend and colleague of Catton Thompson. Gardner was a geology teacher and researcher at Bedford College and had gone on several expeditions with Catton Thompson. Everything seemed great. It was a team of individuals that brought complementary skills to the table. However, what looks good on paper doesn't necessarily mean it will work in the field. Freya Stark was a person who thrived on spontaneity and improvisation. 
She was casual and learned to go with the flow of things. Gatton Thompson was the type who valued punctuality and predictability. She was very formal and insisted that the three team members keep things professional, meaning it was Miss Stark and Miss Gatton Thompson. It was obvious the two were not going to be besties. When the women reached Aiden, it was found that Stark had forgotten to book hotel rooms, forcing them to scramble for lodging. Gatton Thompson was already frustrated by Stark's, quote, unbusinesslike ways, end quote. Eleanor Gardner would add that Stark did everything by the seat of her pants, although she didn't say pants. And there were other issues. More than 70 boxes and crates of personal and scientific gear had accidentally been sent to Singapore. It was not Stark's fault, but it was not a great way to start things out. Also, Stark made a major miscalculation by coming to Yemen at the start of the holy month of Ramadan. This meant hiring guides and help was nearly impossible. Her response to the mistake was to tell everyone to kick back and relax and enjoy the city. That did not sit well with Captain Thompson, who was itching to be moving. She hated wasting her time. By the way, Stark's friend Anton Bess was in Abyssinia in Africa during this time, so she was not able to tap him for any aid. She would thus have to wrangle up a servant on her own, a young hillman named Kasim. Now, before we get our three explorers off on their adventure, I want to mention one person to you, and that is Stuart Perrone. He was a political officer in Aden, and he had read all of Stark's books and absolutely loved her stuff. The two would meet and quickly become friends. He did everything he could to help her get the expedition going. Perrone was nine years younger than Stark, but Freya quickly took a shine to the man. He will prove to be an important person in Stark's life, and the two would ultimately marry a decade later. However, it would not be a happy marriage, as it turned out that Perrone was gay. We will talk about that next time. Stark, Catton Thompson, and Gardner took a plane from Aden to Makula on November 8, 1937. Kasim followed in a ship with all the gear. Harold Ingrams, the local political operative, was not thrilled about the expedition. The area the women were heading into had seen far too many outbreaks of violence. It was not uncommon for the British Air Force to bomb trouble spots to try and keep everyone in line. The three women and Kasim set off into the interior on November 14th, riding in an ancient truck heading for Tareem, where Stark had reached two years earlier. Kasim, by the way, will stay with Stark throughout the expedition. He wore a white shirt and a white and yellow turban. Stark said he was not the smartest guy, but she praised his tender heart and loyalty. Once she sent him to the market to buy kitchen utensils for the expedition, and he returned with a single carved dagger. But probably my favorite story about Kasim was when Stark would find him straining the soup with his turban. When asked about it, he said that he had washed the turban first. Sadly, Kasim was not much of a cook either. And so Stark and her companions were off, packed onto an old truck along with more than 80 packages of gear and supplies. They rode with a pair of Saeeds, meaning people who claimed to be descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. This was always a positive as bandits were reluctant to attack holy people such as these. They reached the town of Tareem, where the presence of three Western women brought a frenzy of attention. It quickly became evident that Freya Stark and Gertrude Catton Thompson had different ideas on how to run an expedition. Stark employed patience and understanding. She insisted on following the customs of the locals, eating what they ate, and treating them as equals. Every step of the journey required some sort of diplomacy. Catton Thompson, however, was very different. She didn't speak Arabic, and she treated the hired help with indifference at best. The Bedouin were nothing more than coolies who could be browbeaten into subservience and should be happy to have work and food. This sort of thing grated at Stark. And when Catton Thompson was surrounded by curious women and children, she just wanted to be free of them. They were nuisances. 
Stark understood the need to engage these people and satisfy their curiosity. All this social stuff was a waste of time to Captain Thompson. It didn't help that Captain Thompson was not accustomed to the squalor of some of the places they had to stay. For Stark, it was part of the way things were done. You just had to accept it. Captain Thompson treated it as an affront. Eleanor Gardner often acted as an intermediary between the two women, but in the end, she was Captain Thompson's old friend and colleague. She got along fine with Stark, but when push came to shove, she would back Captain Thompson. After reaching Tareem, it was on to Shea Yoon, where they were put up by a prominent local businessman. Now, Stark had hoped to travel to the west, towards Wadi Amd, to test a theory that a major alternative incense route had run down to the ancient port of Cana. No one knew the actual location of Cana, so she thought that would be really cool to find, since she had been denied Shabwa. Captain Thompson didn't care about this. She wanted to find a good place to start digging. Stark, however, would keep the three moving to the west, next to Shabam on November 25th, where she'd flown out the previous year. The place that they stayed in was dirty and suffocating, and it wasn't long before illness set in. Eleanor Gardner developed a fever, then Stark got dysentery. And then as Gardner improved, Captain Thompson developed a bad fever. By the way, Stark does her best to poke Captain Thompson in her book, and this was one of those moments. She actually never uses the woman's name, just calling her the archaeologist. Well, she says Captain Thompson boasted about never getting sick, insinuating that Stark and Gardner were not as special as her. Of course, she then promptly got sick. This sort of thing goes on throughout Stark's book. It's filled with little digs and slights at Captain Thompson. Not always, but often, and she does praise her at times. Once, when talking about the woman, Stark admits that, quote, there is a heroism about her, end quote. Regarding Eleanor Gardner, Stark treats her decently, and the two seem to have gotten along well enough. However, Gardner would grow tired of playing peacemaker between her colleagues, even as she nursed both of them back to health. Side note here, it was while she was confined in her bed that Kasim would bring Stark a book, a simple tome about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. It was his favorite book, and since she was in pain, Kasim thought it might bring her some relief. That incident has nothing to do with our story, other than to reinforce how much I like Kasim, but it also demonstrates Stark's ability to recognize the decency in people and talk about it. Kasim's actions were a big deal to him, and thus they were a big deal to her. You don't often get that kind of thing in these stories. Side note done. Now, in Shibam, Stark, despite being ill, crawled out of bed to photograph the end of Ramadan. No matter how sick, she wasn't going to miss the chance to capture such a moment. Her photos of this expedition are really quite amazing, and they would eventually be made into a book. Stark's health would take a turn for the worse as her malaria returned. She began her old habit of self-medicating, and soon she was having heart palpitations and suffered from fainting spells. Stark insisted she needed to be evacuated to the hospital in Aden. Catton Thompson and Gardner were happy to arrange such a thing, and a plane, supplied by Anton Bess, who was back in Aden, arrived and took Stark out of the messy situation. In her book, Stark says a plane just happened to land in the nearby field, but in reality, she had asked for the ride, and a message had been sent to Aden. Now, with Stark and Aiden recovering from her health issues, Captain Thompson and Garner found a good-looking place to start digging in Hurida, west in the valley, like they had wanted to do weeks earlier. And Captain Thompson picked a great spot. They excavated the site from December 1937 to March 1938. The site turned out to be a moon temple dedicated to the god Sin, the first such discovery made in southern Arabia. The two women also found 50 Himeratic and Sabian inscriptions and murals, which dated back to the 5th century BCE. And there were cave tombs, pottery, beads, goblets, and even some skulls. Gardner mapped the area's irrigation system 
that had once helped the valley thrive. As for Stark, she got better in Aiden under the care of a doctor and would eventually go on to some parties and events, including spending some time with Stuart Perrone. She didn't really want to go back to Captain Thompson and Gardner's dig, but she knew that it would look bad if she didn't. There were already some snide remarks being made about how she had been evacuated twice by a plane. Stark's colleagues were not happy to have her back when she showed up at the dig on December 27th, but it's not as if they could do anything about it. The problem was that Stark was out of her element. She was not an academic or scientist. Captain Thompson made her feel insecure. Stark was interested in archaeology, but it wasn't like she could learn the intricacies of it overnight. She felt alone and worthless in the world of Captain Thompson and Gardner. Stark would try and contribute to the expedition, but she was not needed often. Usually she was called on to photograph sites, objects, or inscriptions that had been discovered. Freya spent her time meeting with officials, visitors, and the local people. She documented feasts, weddings, divorces, and deaths. And she did her geographer thing, mapping the area thoroughly and making sure proper names were assigned to places and tribes. Stark's health would come and go in the next couple of months, and in late January, she had a relapse and found herself in bed again. Eleanor Gardner would send word to Harold Ingrams, and within a few days a plane arrived to get her out. However, the plane was an open-air type, and Stark refused to fly in it, saying she was too sick. Stark would thus spend a couple of months at the dig, trying to contribute when she could, but otherwise planning the next leg of her adventure, a journey to Wadi Amd in the west to seek the lost port of Cana. The expedition targeted March 5, 1937, for their departure. Stark tried to convince her colleagues to go with her on her sidetrack, which, by the way, had not been approved by British officials. But Captain Thompson and Gardner were done. They had no desire to trek through the desert on donkeys and camels with Freya Stark. It was time for the collaboration to be done. Whether Stark's invitation to travel was genuine, I don't know. It seems like she would have been happy to get rid of Captain Thompson. No matter after the experience of the past few months, she vowed never to again be put in such a position where she felt inadequate or treated as less than an equal. And so Stark decided that if they were not going to go with her, she would do it on her own. She would make this an epic journey and write her own story. Stark, along with Kasim, hired three camels and several Bedouin guides and headed towards Wadi Amd to the west. Her goal was to follow the incense route and find where an alternative path headed south to the coast. If she could do that, the trail would lead her to the lost port of Cana. They moved along the trail. However, things almost came to an end before long when Stark fell ill. A message was sent that she needed to be evacuated again. However, Stark recovered quickly and sent word to cancel her rescue team. The idea that she would be rescued from the interior a third time ate at her pride. She pressed on, but her health issues would never really go away. Stark, along with Kasim, would ride camels and donkeys with a variety of guides for the rest of their journey. This included a man named Saeed Ali and another named Ahmed. Of the latter, she praised him for his hard work. The man supported a wife, several daughters, three orphans, and two sisters. Yet he never complained. Stark found honor and decency in the poor, hard-working man. The journey to Wadi Amd and beyond was often filled with barren, hot, and poverty-stricken villages. Many wells had been dry for years, making for a water shortage. The people that Stark met were usually excited by the sight of her. Most had never met a white woman or man, although they had seen the British airplanes that patrolled the area. They had heard stories about the planes bombing villages on behalf of the Sultan in Makula. This sort of thing terrified them as they struggled to ponder their own future in such a strange new world. She had to assure them that she was not with the government in any way. 
By the way, if you are wondering what sort of things were happening that caused the British to go bombing villages, Stark explained one situation where a tribe stole 42 camels from another tribe. The Sultan in Makula ordered the camels returned. When that didn't happen, he talked to Harold Ingrams, who sent six British planes to the area. The first tribe returned the camels with the threat hanging over them. Freya Stark spent a month making her way through a network of valleys towards the west. Her company covered 120 miles, riding 9 and 10 hours a day in the brutal sun. It was at the town of Azaz that Stark found her next clue. Here she discovered pre-Islamic inscriptions etched into the walls of the city and evidence the incense trade went not only to the west, to Marib, but to the south, through the Wadi Mafai, which she called a highway to the sea. After talking to the local people, they described a place that sounded like it could be the lost city she sought. It was a place called Hussan al-Gharab. The nephew of the local sultan offered to take her there. For Stark, this was what she had been looking for. If they followed the trail to the sea, it would reveal the location of ancient Cana. Azan was about 40 miles, or 65 kilometers, from the coast. This all sounded great, but there was a problem. Tribal tensions were high, and Stark was warned it was unwise to go to the sea. She would not be welcomed. Well, Stark was not going to give up her quest. She was so close, and after all the frustrations of the past few months, she wasn't going to let the opportunity slip past her. The Sultan of Azan would thus give her a dozen soldiers and 27 camels, loaded with tobacco and other trade goods, to help her with any negotiations. The Sultan's nephew would be her guide. The trek south was through a grim volcanic desert, and it wasn't until later that Stark found out that the nephew was actually looking to provoke a fight with the neighboring Bur Ali tribe. No matter, Stark and her escort reached Husan al-Gharab and collected archaeological evidence there and along the route, confirming the existence of the incense trade route and the location of the lost port of Cana. Stark had found her route and her lost city. The local tribesmen were not thrilled about Freya's arrival, but she did all she could to avoid any conflict. She did not stay long and retreated down the coast, eventually reaching the village of Balhof, where she got a trading dhow to take her to Aden. Freya Stark's second journey to Yemen was over. The expedition had, in a lot of ways, been a success. The dig led by Captain Thompson had yielded some great stuff, and Stark had expanded the historic knowledge of the incense trade route, including locating the lost port of Cana. But the endeavor had been full of problems. Stark had proven ill-suited to working with others and let the worst side of her personality prevail. She was stubborn and petty and petulant. When Stark returned to Aden, there were snickers about the fact that she had, again, needed to be rescued by a plane from the interior. In fact, planes had gone out for her not just once, but three times. It hadn't helped that Captain Thompson had returned to Aden with all sorts of cool info about her dig and passed on the most unflattering stories about Stark that she could think of. And there would be some grumbling from British officials about the fact that Stark had gone on her trek to Cana through lands she was not approved to be traveling in. Thankfully, no tribal warfare broke out due to her actions, but officials were getting tired of her. She was a loose cannon who needed too much babysitting. Once back in Aden, Stark would be forced back to a hospital as she developed a fever and she struggled with exhaustion. Once she was healthy enough to travel, Stark would head back to Italy to recover, bringing with her a collection of manuscripts, carpets, daggers, and silk gowns. After that, it was on to London. The Royal Geographical Society would award her their Founders Gold Medal, and she would begin to document her latest journey. And it wasn't a smooth process. Stark and her publisher decided to put out two books. The first was a collection of photos. The second was her account of the journey. 
The photography book, titled Scene in the Hadramat, was great. It was the first photographic portrayal of life and the people in this remote region. The story of the expedition, however, was not so simple. It would take Stark two years to actually get it published. Winter in Arabia would be released in 1940. The problem was Stark's desire to use the book as a payback towards Gertrude Catton Thompson. Initially, the theme of the book was the arrogance of people treating those they encounter as primitive. Stark was reportedly savage in her early versions of the story. Catton Thompson, she is called the archaeologist, is cast as arrogant, cruel, and the worst sort of European. Thankfully, Stark's friends and her publisher encouraged her to tone down the portrayals, but even that was not enough. Eventually, her friend, Sidney Cockrell, who was also a friend of Catton Thompson, would write Stark and lay things on the table, saying, quote, Your references to her, meaning Catton Thompson, are undignified, ill-natured, and questionable in taste, quite unworthy of anyone so perfect in most respects as yourself, and calculated, therefore, to tarnish your reputation, end quote. In the end, most of the really nasty stuff is edited out, but the theme remains. Catton Thompson was furious about the book, and she and Stark would never cross paths in their long lives, always doing their best to avoid the other for decades. Another note, Stark would have another book published in 1937. This was Baghdad Sketches, a collection of articles and essays about her time in Iraq, many of them taken from her time writing for the Baghdad Times. The book was another success. And so the 1930s was coming to a close, and to be honest, the life of Freya Stark, the explorer, was coming to a close as well. World War II will dominate her life in the coming years, and her role in that is fascinating. We will talk about that next time. In post-World War II, Stark will write her autobiography, as well as some essays and other travel books, but her life as an explorer heading into the unknown was mostly over. But there's still lots to talk about, which we will cover next time. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the tales of Freya Stark and her explorations of Yemen. Please join us next time as we finish our series on this amazing woman. Thank you for listening. Take care. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, including Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People and the Useless Information Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.